0: Good morning, everyone. Before we get started today with the text, we're going to be studying two things. Uh, one, if you have been coming to New Hope for quite a while, you would say this is my church home. You want to get plugged in and serve. Well, We do have an area of need uh, that would need some people to jump in and serve. And, and it's a good thing. Uh, our, stu- our children's ministry has been growing pretty drastically, particularly in the third service, right? And so you're like, man, he got us, right? Because we come to second. That means we could serve at third, right? Now, only if you feel called to do so. Here's my challenge. Would you just pray about it? Think through, hey, is the Lord calling us to jump in and get plugged in to serve? It's not a lifelong commitment. I know the church has that reputation, like, you you know, you start serving and then you die. Uh, And that's not, you know, and along the way, (laughs) I guess you keep dying, but uh, that's not the goal. We just... You know, we've, we, it's been growing quite a bit, and they need some people plugged in back there to serve. If that's you, just reach out to the church, fill out a Connect card, and we will get you plugged in that way. Second thing is this. Um, uh, during the uh, quarantine, where we weren't meeting in person, um, had some some friends uh, begin to watch online and then um, started attending New Hope because they moved into the area, uh, had some good conversations with them, sat down with uh, Scott and Michelle and had some really good conversations And uh, they had good questions. We walked through some things. And then this past uh, Friday evening, got the joy of baptizing them into Christ. Um, Here's what's really cool. Uh, The picture on the left, Scott and his friend Jim. Uh, Jim's been working on Scott, sharing the gospel for many, many years through the ministry at Plainfield Christian Church. Uh, Steve White and and, uh, Luke Proctor and the ministry that's going on there is is where Jim's at. And uh, so it's a pretty powerful moment. Uh, It's pretty cool to be a part of. And so they're here in service with us. I hope you guys don't mind. They're right here. Uh, and so we, can we just celebrate the party that took place in heaven on Friday night? Very cool. Awesome. And that note, let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. And I just pray this morning. This is a, this is a difficult text. It's hard to, to preach through this. So just pray that you would speak clearly to us from your word. And we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the lessons that I'm learning as a preacher, as a younger preacher, uh, who's developing uh, this, this gift God's called me to, is there comes time where you, uh, times where you come to a passage uh, as you're preaching. And you come to a text and you realize, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh uh, because this doesn't necessarily jive well with the culture that surrounds the place in which I'm going to be preaching this passage. Um, and that's hard. It is. It's really difficult. I'll tell you why. I have a very deep conviction that the very best thing that I can do is to preach to the church from God's word. That more than the practical advice of man and the the self-help principles that will make your life better right now, more than any of that, you need wise counsel from God's word. And so that's where I feel called to do that, which means when we're telling you at the beginning of January that we're going to spend a year walking through 1st and 2nd Corinthians slowly. When we get to the first portion of chapter 11, we don't get to just skip over it and pretend like it's not there because it's hard to study. Likewise, I can't just simply get up here in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 and tell you, well, it could mean this and it could mean that. Now you go home and decide where you land on this. That's not okay either. Those are games that people play. That's not what we're called to do. And so days like this can get hard. And today's no different as we look at gender roles in First Corinthians chapter 11. And some look at that and they, they say, man, what's so hard about this, Rob? People need the truth. And so just preach the truth. Give them what they need. And if they don't like it, they need it more. You just need to keep bringing them the truth. And look, early on, I really resonated with that, like, bring it, defend the truth type of approach. But as I've really wrestled with the text back and forth and, and pastored people, You understand, like I love preaching because I'm preaching to you in this room right now. I'm not preaching to a camera or the internet. It's you, like it's people in our church. And as I've sat with many people and spent time with people, one of the things that uh, makes that a little bit harder for me is asking the question, why are we doing this? What is the purpose of preaching the truth? Is it to show the world that we're right and you're wrong and to continually show the world I'm right and you're wrong? Or instead, are we called to bring healing and wholeness to a lost and broken world? I think it's the latter. Unfortunately, though, people come to passages of the Bible and they take it and they twist it and they turn it for selfish gain. They make it say what is going to benefit their life and what's going to make their life easier and how they're going to grow a reputation or they're going to get some sort of uh, monetary benefit from it. And there's all kinds of reasons people will take the Bible and they'll say things and they'll twist it and they'll make it to their own personal benefit. And unfortunately, the passage we're going to study today has been one of those passages. It's been twisted and turned to just benefit individual people, and as a result, it's created a lot of pain, and what I've noticed in ministry is this, that because of that pain, many people having to walk through pain and being mistreated because of a Bible text, there's a veil of abuse and pain that makes it harder to see the text. Thus, our challenge this morning, acknowledging that the pain is real. But the source of that pain was a twisted version of the Bible, not the Bible itself. Many well-meaning scholars and preachers have come to texts like this and then evaluated the pain and the the difficulty, the abuse that's been taking place in the lives of people that they love and care for and have decided to change their stance on passages like this. I'll tell you why we can't do that, because we're not the authors of the text. God is. And I understand how people come to that. When you see someone you love and care for, or you've walked through pain and difficulty yourself, I can understand why you'd be tempted to do that, but we can't. Why? Because at this church, we affirm and will continue to affirm that this is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, and we're going to stay true to it, which means when we come to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it makes it kind of hard. Anybody want to be a preacher today? <laughs> One more thing before we jump in, Honestly if it's you if as we walk through this you realize man i've been on the receiving end of some mistreatment because of this and i feel trapped and i feel alone and i feel like i've struggled and i feel like i've been mistreated i want to start out and genuinely by saying i'm really sorry because you don't you didn't and you don't deserve that this is why as a church we've partnered with different organizations one of them called Thrive Point which is a Christ-based counseling center We would honestly be delighted to connect you with them to begin walking down a path of healing from this. All that said, we got to be true to the text. And what we can do is we can look at a passage like this and we can come to understand what it meant to the church in Corinth, what it means to the church of all time. We can begin to take that truth and apply it to our lives as a congregation and in our homes, and we can apply that truth with a lot of patience, a lot of gentleness, And kindness as we seek to live the life God's called us to live. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get to the passage. Father, this is difficult, and I think most of us in the room can now feel that a text like this is one that I want to make sure we handle with extreme care as we seek to learn from it what you would have us to learn. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do things just a little different this morning. Typically, like to illustrate quite a bit of what I'm preaching, and then we'll walk through a text slowly, verse by verse. Uh, as we come to understand it today, I'm going to have you stand with me, and I'm going to read you the full passage of Scripture that we're going to study. And then I'm going to go back and ask a series of questions of the text that we will answer to better understand what it's saying. If you would stand with me as we read God's Word together as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a man ought to have authority over a, a man... A woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For a woman came from man, so also a man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Anybody else excited? (laughs) I'm going to walk through a series of questions. If you're like me, you read a passage of scripture like that when you're just by yourself reading your Bible, and certain things pop out to you. Certain questions might say, what did he mean by that? Why did he say that? What is that supposed to mean? What's that word mean? And so I just want to walk through a series of questions as I read it, just a bare reading of the text that jumped out to me. And I think as we walk through the answer to these questions, my prayer is that we'll have a better understanding of what this text is saying and then we'll spend some time talking about how does this play out in our lives today. The first question that comes to mind is this. What does Paul mean in verse 3 when he says that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God? What's that supposed to mean? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? Well, this verse in particular has created a whole lot of dead trees. <laughs> there has been a lot of writing about what this means. Uh, can we leave the question up there just throughout? I'm sorry. Um, as, as people have tried to explore what is the meaning of this word, they've, they've said what is, the key is what is the meaning of the word head in this passage? Like the, Paul, the word that Paul uses has a particular meaning, and how does that apply to us? Now, I'll tell you this. The best commentator on the Bible is the Bible, okay? which means the best way to understand what Paul might have been getting at when he used that particular word is to see how he used that word in other contexts in his writings. And if you do a survey of the writings of the apostle Paul and how he used this particular word for head, particularly in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, you come to understand that in every time that Paul's using this and it mentions the name of Jesus or references Christ, it always has the connotation of authority over That makes it hard to read, right? Because what what Paul is saying then is the authority over every man is Christ, the authority over woman is man, and the authority over Christ is God. And So we read that and we think, "Ooh, I don't like the way that sounds, right? (laughs) That's not pleasant and that's not fun. But the question is, why would Paul describe it this way? And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. But to understand that To have spiritual authority, Paul gives us a little hint here in this verse. To have spiritual authority over somebody did not communicate in any context superiority, more value, more worth, somehow better than, dominant over. That's not what it conveyed. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at what Paul gives us a hint at. He makes reference to the Trinity here. And you don't want to pull too many conclusions from that. You don't want to try to make too many comparisons to the Trinity. But one of the things that you do see when you read this is what it cannot mean For the man to have authority over the woman is for the man to be superior to the woman. For the man to have dominance over the woman. How would we know that? Well, because he references the relationship between God and Jesus. Right? And so what we do draw from this is not authority over meaning superiority or more value or more important. What we draw from this is you have two people equal in value, but have now two different roles. They've got two roles to fulfill. What are those roles and how do those roles play out? We'll get to that here in a minute, but what we learn from the use of the word head is it's not superior, it's not greater than, it's not more than, it's not more important than. Why? Because Jesus and God equal different roles. So now we have equality and value and worth between the man and the woman, but two different roles for them to fulfill within the way God created things. Second question that may pop up for you that popped up for me is this. Do men need to leave their head uncovered when praying or prophesying? And do women need to keep their heads covered when praying or prophesying? The short answer to this question is absolutely, and we're all in deep trouble. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not true. You're like, are you kidding? I'm leaving. Like, that's not, that's not the answer. The answer to this is no. Let me tell you why. In, in that culture in the day, for someone to come into an assembly of people, for a man in particular, to come into a gathering of people and to have a covering on their head, it indicated a couple different things. One, they were showing off. They were bringing attention to themselves. They were trying to make a statement about their status in the culture. And so they would wear a covering on their head when they came into certain gatherings. Likewise, for a female in those days, in those days, having shorter hair in those days, I don't want this taken out of context having shorter hair in those days was a, it was a statement that a woman would be making about male leadership and her refusal to acknowledge it. So if a woman were to come into a gathering and not veil her head, what she's saying by not veiling her head is, I don't find myself in submission to my husband's authority. And what she would be saying with shorter hair is, I don't recognize male authority. at all. She's making a very clear statement about what she thinks about the state of things. And so the Apostle Paul says, then for a man, you should always keep your head uncovered when you're in a worship gathering because the attention should never be given to you. And for the woman, you should keep your, hair, your head veiled, covered, Because the attention, that is not the place for you to make a statement about what you think about things. It's not a place for you to come in and make any kind of a statement drawing attention to yourself. So how does that play out today? So should men always keep their head, take their hat off every time they pray? Should a woman keep her head covered? Look, if that's your conviction, I would tell you that's fine. That's okay. But what the text is telling us is this. When you come into a worship time, when you come in to gather, your attention and your affection should be pointed to Jesus and nothing else. And your goal should be to eliminate any distraction your life might cause for someone else's ability to keep their attention and their affection pointed to Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you're coming in and wearing some sort of a covering on your head or not wearing a covering on your head, you're coming in and you're trying to make a statement, bring attention to yourself. You're trying to be fashionable, trying to stand out. The Apostle Paul would say that's not permitted in worship. Stop drawing attention to yourself and give the attention to Jesus. The only one who's worthy to be worshiped when we gather together. That said, if Paul's telling women to wear a covering, the next question pops out is what was that covering? Like, what, Why did they have to wear a covering over their head? Some people argue that the, the covering is the long hair itself. I think if you read verses 15 and 16, it's hard uh, in its context, it's hard to come to that conclusion. I think they wore a light covering over their head. My thought would be that it was a shawl. Uh, like a light shawl that they could put on, and they would wear it in this assembly. They would wear it when they gathered together. When they went out in public, they would wear this for a specific purpose. And that purpose plays out as being uh, a sign to everybody around them that they do acknowledge the authority and the leadership of their husband. Again, I'm saying all this, and it's like sometimes that's like sandpaper. I don't like the way you're describing that. Bear with me, please. Question number four. What does it mean in verse 7, then when the Apostle Paul says that the woman is the glory of man? What what does that mean? The woman is the glory of man. Why did Paul describe it that way in this passage? As I studied and and dove into this, I missed some things. and, And so I jump in and I'm studying this to prepare for this sermon. And I came to my personal conclusion. This is the key verse to the whole passage. Understanding the answer to this question really unlocks what Paul's trying to say about everything else. And let me explain why. Paul roots this. He has this beautiful way of rooting this difficult discussion in the creation order. And I say that on purpose. He ties this back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And he does it on purpose. He's trying to say God, in his sovereignty and in his power, bestowed His a portion of his glory when he created man, man in his image. Then from man, he created woman. There's an order to that, and Paul says it. It was God created man, and then from man created woman. There's this order. So as God bestows his glory, it's given into that creation order. He says then the goal of life... It's for all glory. Now, this is, this is where if you disagree on this, you can agree on this point, okay? Let me pause just for a second. We all see the creation order. It's hard to argue that from Genesis 1 and 2. It's hard to argue against that. So there's this creation order. God bestowing his glory down this line, this creation order. Now, many people, when they come to this type of a discussion, will land in one of two camps. They're going to be in a camp called complementarianism. Let me explain what that means. You're like, don't say words like that. <laughs> uh, Complementarianism means this. It means men and women were created equal in value. They have different roles to fulfill in the life of the church and in life in general. They complement one another. Then there's an egalitarian view. And what egalitarian would teach is men and women were created equal and have, there is no distinction between what they're called to do. There is no distinguishing it. Okay. And I'm given a really bare definition of those two. So bear with me. Okay. Now, whether you land in this camp or this camp, New Hope lands in the complementarian camp. That's what we affirm to be the truth, what the Bible teaches. But if you land on the other side of that, here's the thing. We all agree that when you read the Bible, all glory belongs to God. You nailed it. All right, you're still with me. So all glory belongs to God. So when Paul then says that he's given glory in the creation order, By creating man in his own image and from man creating woman. All the glory given needs to then make its way back to. So the way that we live within the created order is the way that we return that glory back to God. All glory given is returned back to him. And so when Paul says that woman is the glory of man, what he's saying is when you live in that created order, you are giving glory back to God. You're not being oppressed. You're not not being, you know, treated down. You're not being withheld from privileges. God is saying, if you live within the way that I created things to be, you're returning glory back to God. And God is ultimately concerned with his own glory. And so how we live within the created order is the way in which we return God back the glory that he is due. To me, that's one of the most beautiful things. Why? Because when we live the way God intended for us to live, he gets the glory. When we stop, here's the problem. Here's when things go south. When a woman says, I'm going to live in submission to the leadership of my husband, I'm going to lift him up. I'm going to make sure that I'm honoring his leadership. And she is passing that on so that ultimately God will get the glory for that. And then the man receives that love and care from his wife and it stops there. Yeah, that's right. I'm the leader. And the man then in turn doesn't do the hard work of turning around and just giving that glory back to God and honoring God, by the way, he's living in the created order, things go south. People get mistreated. People don't flourish. And Paul is saying when we want everyone to flourish, everyone lives their role within that created order. God gets all the glory. And when God gets all the glory, families thrive. Churches thrive. Societies thrive. Cultures thrive thrive. Nations thrive. The whole world thrives when we live within that created order. The problem is, whether it's the man refusing to give the glory or the woman saying, I'm not going to do that. And what happens in that moment is we're saying, I want the glory. I don't want to give it back to God. So uh, 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 in the created order, a woman who says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a statement. I will not submit to my husband's leadership. I will not submit to leadership in the church. I will. In that moment, a lot of other things can be going on. But in that moment we're also saying i want the glory and for a man to say you better treat me well you better serve me i'm the one that is what happens in that moment he's saying i want the glory what paul's saying is the only way for this to work is for god to get the glory and for us to live that way next question what does paul mean by the symbol of authority on her head because of the angels in verse 10 so as a woman lives this out What does he mean when he says this symbol of authority on her head? I just simplify it for you this way. What Paul is saying is that head coverings in that day, they functioned as a sign of submission to the husband or the leadership of the church. And because of that submission, she is therefore able to pray and prophesy in in the church gathering. So when she has that sign, she's then able to, because she's in submission to the authority of her husband and the church leadership, able to pray and participate in the gathering of the church. Paul roots this again in the created order. He says, this is a part of the created order, but he stops short of saying that the head covering itself is a part of the created order. Why? Because for the church in Corinth, it was a head covering for the church in Corinth. It was you put that head covering on because culturally speaking in that day, this was the sign. The point is not the covering. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The point is the sign of authority that the covering represented which means when she would put that covering on her head, what she's telling everyone paying attention is that she has the authority to be doing what she's doing because she's in submission to the leadership of her husband and the leadership of the church. And in that day, it was a veil of, uh, or shawl that you would wear. It didn't veil the face. It was a shawl that you would put over your head. In our day, it might look a lot different. In our day it could be a wedding ring. Our day it could be taking your husband's last name. It Could be the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you dress. There's all kinds of things that say, hey, I am, I am somebody who has been given this authority. And so when I'm speaking or when I'm leading a prayer, the purpose of that is that I'm underneath the authority of my husband or the leadership of the church. Again, somewhat hard to hear. But again, when we, we live in the way God created things, everybody around thrives that way. Verse, or, or question six, verse, chapter, question six. <laughs> what is meant by the phrase then? does not the nature of things teach? Here's another thing to add in. It ties into the type of covering on the head. When Paul says nature, he means created order. Does not the way that God created everything and the way that everything functions teach us something about this way that things should operate? What he's saying is there are some things that the created order teach us like this, male and female, God created them. Man and woman. So in their masculinity and femininity, they need to lean into God's understanding of that. You were created in his image as a man. You lean into that understanding and you lean into understanding what it means to be a man the way that God created you. You are created as a woman. You lean into that understanding. We don't change it. We don't manipulate it. We don't have a say in it. God created that is set in stone the way he created it. Now, on top of that, the culture will tell us certain things throughout time what it looks like to be man and to be woman and what's acceptable and what's not really acceptable. In 2021, that's getting harder and harder to understand. It really is. In their day, the length of the hair communicated something. So Paul says a man shouldn't have long hair because in doing so, he's confusing what people think about him. And don't do that. You were created as a man. Lean into that. Same thing. A woman with short hair. In those days, in our day, that looks a lot different. We pay attention to certain things that communicate the femininity or the masculinity, and we lean into those things and we accept those things and they communicate a certain thing about us. And so Paul says, Look around you. There are certain things that will indicate the role in which you've been designed to fulfill. Live in that role. And when you do, it's selfless. And when you don't, it's selfish. And when you do, God gets the glory. And when you don't, you're trying to take the glory. So live in such a way that God always gets the glory. And what happens? The family flourishes the church flourishes, the society flourishes, the culture flourishes. And when we mix that up and we get that out of whack, everything begins to fall apart. So as I looked at this passage, one of the things that stood out to me is this truth that you can gather from this, right? And I've kind of already said it over and over again, but I want you to see this phrase. It's when things are used the way that they were created to be used, everyone who's affected by that flourishes. They flourish. Ryan and Catherine uh, King were they're on staff with us, and they were missionaries in Haiti, and Ryan shared a story uh, this week while we were studying this passage together that really illustrates this well, this idea that when things are used the way they were created to be used, things go well, and when not, it confuses things. When they were missionaries in Haiti, uh, they w- they went into an apartment. They met a lady who was a housekeeper who didn't speak really great English, and so uh, as they interacted with her, they introduced her to the concept of a vacuum. She'd never heard of a vacuum, and they're trying to help, help her understand this. Well, then they leave. They come back, and she has vacuumed the entire apartment. But she vacuumed the entire apartment by turning the vacuum on, standing it upright, and walking it around the apartment. Right? And so they get back, and they're like, well, it's not, it's not really been vacuumed. Why? Because that's not the way that the vacuum was intended to be used. It's not what it was created to be used for. What did she have to do? Well, you kick the base and you lean the handle back which engages the motor which then begins to operate the vacuum and when she learned that that changed everything now you flourish you see how that works on a more serious note you see this with the bible i've seen multiple websites multiple individuals some of you have family members that operate this way they want to take verses out of the bible So that they can argue against Christianity, so that they can make fun of Christians, so that they can say that we got it all wrong, that we're oppressive and all these things. And what they're doing is they're taking these verses and they're ripping them out of their context. They're not using the Bible the way that God intended the Bible to be used. They're not reading it the way he wanted it to be read. They're not living it out the way that he intended for it to be lived out. And as a result, they're taking something and distorting the way it was created to get their own personal gain, to work their own personal agenda. And what happens is people suffer that way. People don't flourish. But when we take the Bible and we put it back into the context and and use it the way God intended for it to be used as his word to teach us and to instruct us to help us flourish, then what happens? Well, everybody flourishes. So how does this play out in the life of the church? And how does this play out in our homes when we live something like this out? And this is a wrestling match for me. Why? Because if you fast forward in 1 Corinthians, you come to chapter 14, and inevitably we will get there. The Apostle Paul has a a way of, he speaks to this issue of women in the church again. I'm going to talk through it right now, because when we get to chapter 14, I don't want to do this again. (laughs) Because it was a long week. Like I said, anybody want to be a preacher today? Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the, the Apostle Paul says these words about the gender roles in the church again. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Anybody want to preach now after we've read that? How can Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tell us that it's permittable for a woman permissible for a woman to pray and prophesy in the gathering. And then in chapter 14, tell a woman to be silent and that she can't speak. We have to understand what's taking place. In that day, what would happen is they would, the women that would pray and they were permitted to prophesy. What Paul is limiting their ability to be a part of is the teaching of what the prophecy meant. Prophecy is kind of a messy word for us. So let me explain it this way. Uh, We would teach here at New Hope that we have prophecy right here. We have it here. We, it doesn't need to be, we don't need more prophecy. We have what God has given to us. And so the gift of prophecy uh, that's being spoken of in 1 Corinthians, we would not say is used today. We have God's word. In that day, though, they were prophesying words from the Lord. And then you had to say, okay, well, what did that prophecy mean? And inevitably, in interpreting what it meant, you were teaching, exercising spiritual authority over everybody who would hear you. The apostle Paul says, in that particular situation, women need to allow the men to interpret what it says, exercising spiritual authority, to honor the created order of things. So the woman then exercises the spiritual leadership over the church gathering. And this is how the apostle Paul explained this. There's two areas of the church where Paul would say are reserved for male leadership because They exercise spiritual authority, and because of the created order, the way that God created things to be. That would be what I'm doing right now, preaching and teaching from God's word to the gathered assembly. This is not women's Bible studies and women's conferences. This is the gathering of the church body, teaching God's word, teaching what the Bible has to say, and then the role of elder whose role is to be the spiritual leader of the entire congregation. When I say spiritual leader, that can really feel weird in our culture. Here's what I mean. They are spiritually responsible for the health of the congregation. That's the role of elder. They will be held accountable. They will answer to God for how well or not well they spiritually led the congregation. That's the role. So in the life of a church today, that's what it looks like. Those two roles, and that's it, are reserved for male leadership because they exercise authority in the teaching and preaching and in the role of elder. But how does it play out in our homes then? How are we supposed to live this out in our lives, in our day-to-day life, in the home? What does a Christian home look like if they're going to live into that created order, returning all of the glory back to God? How does that look? And because you're like, man, that's not always done well. And sometimes people feel trapped and sometimes people feel like they don't know what to do and what, what, what could possibly be next for this. I love the way that Paul goes on to explain this when he writes to the church at Ephesus in the letter to the Ephesians. Now, we don't have enough time to go through. Let's pause real quick on that. We don't have enough time to get all the way through that letter now. So I'm going to give you a little, um, a little preview. All of 2022, we're going to be studying through the book of Ephesians together on Sunday mornings. And so we will get to this passage. We will slow down, and we will look at it in more detail. I'm going to put up Eugene Peterson's translation of Ephesians chapter 5. He translated it into modern language in a, in a translation known as the message. Because I think it communicates these two roles. In the created order, in the home. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 21, Ephesians 5. He says, out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. I mean, you could just pause there. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. So as you are supporting him, as you are lifting him up, you're displaying the way that we, we honor the Lord Jesus as a church family. You're giving a picture to a watching world of what it looks like for the church to honor Jesus and the way that you honor and love your husband. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way that Christ does to his church. That's key as well. But not, not by domineering, but by cherishing her. So just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership, wives, should likewise submit to their husbands. He goes on to explain the role of the husband this way. Verse 25. Husbands, go all out for your love that you have for your wives. Go all out in the love that you have for your wife. Man, I wish we will. We're going to stay right there for bit. What does it look like to go all out for her? To go all out. The cry of the feminine heart, every female from being a little girl all the way into death are always asking the question from their heart, do you delight in me? And Paul is telling husbands, show her that you delight in her the same way that Jesus shows the church he delights in her. A love marked by giving and not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. So when you speak to your wife, it should evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how a husband ought to love his wife. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. It's a beautiful translation. It's a scary translation, though. So what does it look like in the home? Let me give you a little snapshot in my house, what this doesn't mean in my house is that I do all of the devotion leading and I lead all of the prayers and Sarah better d- defer to me for all major decisions. That is lame and it never works. I mean, just this week, okay, two things this week, example from our life this week. I picked my uh, oldest son up from basketball practice. Uh, he and it, it ran late. I'm talking to the coach for a little while afterwards. And so we're on our way home, but I realize we're not going to get home before the younger kids go to bed. So did I call Sarah and say, keep him up? Father's almost home to lead devotions. (laughs) Keep them awake because I've got an S on my chest and my cape is blowing in the wind as I drive home. Like, no, like, no, no. My wife led devotions, prayed with our children, and put them to bed. We're a team. What it's saying when I say spiritual leader is you are spiritually responsible for the health of your family. You know what that means? That means when it's time to pray with your kids, to encourage your wife, you turn ESPN off for a little while. When it's time for you to lead your family spiritually, you stop being lazy and neglecting your responsibility. You stop hogging all of the glory to be the one that was served. You know how Jesus loved the church? Jesus said completely, here's how I'm going to love the church. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life up for the church. Can the same be said of us husbands loving our wives and our families that way? To put their spiritual health over and above any other agenda we might have? Wives, When you're supporting your husband, are you disparaging comments to him? Are you speaking these rude things to him? Are you bringing him down? Are you building him up, trying to bring the best out of him? So together, you're living in that created order. And guess who gets the glory? God. That's what Paul means when he's getting that living in this created order means God's going to get all the glory. It's not about who's first and who's better. It's about, oh man, God, you want me to live this way? I'm going to live this way. I'm going to do it so you get the glory. And the wife says, yeah, you want me to do this? I'm going to do this, God, so you get the glory. So I don't have to stop and whine and cry about any of my roles or my responsibilities because when I do that, I'm hogging the glory. And here's the thing. God does not take the hogging of his glory lightly. We will answer for it. And so the question is, what kind of answer do you want to be able to give him? You're face to face with him. Did you lead your family well? Did you love and serve your family well? Yes. In my prayer, though broken, and I can't do this on my own. I need the Holy Spirit lead me. But in my prayers at the end of my life, you'd look at it and say, man, God got all the glory for that. I want to spend some time praying as we close out this morning. Because here's the deal. You hear something like that, some of you feel trapped. Man, I've been trying so hard to love and support him, and he won't take responsibility. He won't do what he's called to do. He won't step up. And I just feel trapped, and I want to pray over you. Because as you're doing that, you're showing that it's not always easy, but we're going to continue to love and care for. Others, you feel, man, I've messed up so long. I don't know how to lead my family spiritually, and I haven't done a good job so far. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. Here's the beauty of it. You can start loving your wife and leading your family right now because of the grace of Jesus. And then I want to celebrate in this prayer time too, because here's the deal. We oftentimes lament in our prayers and we should, but there's times to celebrate in prayer too, because there's some of you that are doing a great job being an incredible example to the rest of us. As a younger married couple, my wife and I will celebrate 15 years. We look to those who've been married 40 and 50 years and we see though not perfect, they've done an excellent job loving and serving one another, lifting one another up, leading well. And they've given us an example. And I thank God for that in this church. Wherever you're at, I want us to spend a little bit of time praying. We live in the most distracted generation in the history of the world. So when I get quiet for a few moments, it's really hard to focus. So I'm going to ask you, be, uh, be so focused on praying over the different people in the church, praying over your family, husbands. Pray for your wives in these next few moments. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray that your life, your married life, your, this life of this church would be all about giving God the glory in whatever role we find ourselves living out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your patience and your kindness with us because, man, we come to passages like this, and I just struggled all week studying and and to, to preach this. So my prayer is that your words were received, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would find encouragement and strength to begin to live this out. And though it's hard and difficult and the days will be difficult, And it feels like it's not making a difference. It feels like the little moments when we submit and care and love and and, and uplift our spouse or those small moments where we try to lead and we try to be kind and we try to be gentle and we try to do this the right way just feels like it's so insignificant. It doesn't matter. But God, would you remind us that it's in those small moments of faithfulness that you do the greatest work? You begin to form us and shape us into who you need us to be, God. God. So whether we're leading in a family or here in the church, would you give us the spirit of gentleness and kindness, self-control, that we might not hog the glory, that the glory might not come to us, that in every situation we would just return the glory to you. And Father, would you would you help us if we're serving and loving and lifting up and, and complimenting and caring and Living out that role as well, Father, would you just give us the strength to continue doing that, knowing that ultimately when we live the way that you created us to live, you get the glory. And when you get the glory, all of, all of humanity will flourish. May we be a group of people that is dedicated to giving you the glory. And we ask you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.